You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. We're in this series called Disordered Loves. The hope in this conversation is that we will be able to confront the loves of our life that are disordered so that the Spirit may reorder our loves, reorder our lives, reorder our loyalties, and live fully into the gospel of God's kingdom. And so I start off with what is a a difficult teaching of Jesus, but all the things that Jesus taught need to be heard, need to be considered. So looking at his disciples in his sermon on the mount, he said this, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who go through it. How narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life if you find it. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravaging wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree bears good fruit, and in a bad tree produces, but a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit, neither can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that doesn't produce good fruit is cut off and thrown into the fire. So you'll you'll recognize them by their fruit. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, and do miracles in your name? And then I'll announce to them, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws. You know, here Jesus describes the road to discipleship. It is a narrow road. Jesus does not try and entice us to the journey by telling us that it's easy. He does not try to comfort us by telling us that there will be many on the journey with us even. The gate is narrow and the road is hard. And it is even harder because it will include false prophets and false teachers. It will include false Christians. And they'll be good at disguising themselves as fellow travelers. We have to be discerning. Walking this road becomes possible for us only if we keep our eyes on Jesus out ahead of us If we turn our eyes elsewhere to the threats along the way or to the friendships we might lose because of faith, to the judgment we might face from friends or the anxiety that all these other travelers bring, if we turn our eyes there rather than Jesus, to Jesus, we'll get distracted and at worst we might lose our way. And the thing is, why would we expect Jesus to be anything less than candid to us? He loves us. And love necessitates candor. He loves us for God's sake. He's guarding our backs. He's protecting the values that we've embraced from the kingdom. He's calling us to question our own motives. And He's the one who told us that we should forsake all things for the sake of the kingdom. What Jesus requires of us is discernment. We have to know the difference between the way of Jesus, the narrow gate and narrow road, And then the way of life advocated by society, which is this wide road with this wide gate. 
More so, we must know the difference between the true teachers and the false teachers. Jesus said we should judge them by the fruit of their lives. How do they live their lives outside of the teaching moments or the pulpits? Or how do they live their lives outside of the conversations? What's their life look like? What should their lives look like? It should look the same as ours, really. It should look the same because the same as the kind of life ours should be on the narrow road. And it should look like something. Right? And this makes sense to us because Jesus is about action. He's not about words. The Word became flesh. Right? God is done speaking about His way of life to us and chose to embody it for us. Jesus is about good fruit, not just good intentions. Jesus is going to look at us and say, well thought, my good and faithful servant. He isn't going to say, well intended, my good and faithful servant. He's going to look at us and He's going to say, or not say, He's going to say, well done. My good and faithful servant, God is a God of action, and we cannot separate the truth of God from our lives. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, the temptation to separate the truth of what I believe from my life is usually the result of a fear of me not wanting to be held accountable. Because if I see something that I know in my heart is wrong or that I think Jesus may see it as wrong, I'll just explain it away so that I can go the way that I want to go. And this is a sign of disordered love. It's a sign of a disordered understanding of God's love. His love invites us into a life that loves, and real love requires accountability. Otherwise, it's just sentimental and fickle. And when the trials come, it won't last. That's why we say love one another for God's sake. That's why we say we'll believe one another's motives rather than giving moments into our lives where we can question one another's motives. Because we're talking about a love that has to be reordered and one that is accountable to one another. Love's got to look like something. And if it's disordered, it'll produce disordered lives which bear disordered fruit and results in a disordered land. But if the kind of love that Jesus talks about, it'll produce... Good fruit. And it's why Jesus teaches His disciples that, it, that, that it's by our fruits we'll be known. I mean, even Jesus later on said, the world will know you're My disciples, what? By how you love. We can't separate the content of what we call Christianity from the lives we live. It's not what God calls us to. There can be no separation of the truth we believe from the, lie, from the life we live. So what does this narrow gate and narrow way look like then? So later on in Matthew, Jesus gives a clear description as to what a faithful disciple does. The disciples have been walking with Jesus quite a while now. They're learning what kind of life they should live and what kind of love they should give. A disciple life of love is about giving food to the hungry, drink to the thirsty, hospitality to the stranger, clothes to the naked, compassionate care for the sick, and faithful presence with the imprisoned. And so Jesus goes so far then within this next context, which is actually Judgment Day. It's Matthew 25. It's a Judgment Day context. He tells these parables that are about judgment. And Matthew, the disciple who recorded the teaching, actually chooses to lay this part of Jesus' sermon out as the climax and in Matthew chapter 25 and verse 31, it says, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He'll sit on the throne of His glory and all the nations 
will be gathered before him. And he'll separate them one from another, just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to drink. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When do we see you a stranger and take you in or without clothes and clothe you? When, when do we see you sick or in prison and visit you? Now, let me pause. It's, it's critical to note that Jesus tells us that the righteous didn't know. They didn't know. They had no clue. They didn't know that when they did these things, that they were doing these things to Jesus. They were just doing what God would have them do. And in doing that, ended up ministering to Christ Himself. So Jesus goes on. Verse 40, And the king will answer them, I assure you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. And then I'll also say to those on the left, Depart from me, you who are cursed into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you didn't take me in. I was naked and you didn't clothe me. Sick and in prison and you didn't take care of me. And then they too will answer, Lord, when, when do we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger without clothes or sick or in prison and not help you? I mean, I can hear the desperation. I could feel it. Like, if I'd have known it was you, I would have done it. Well, he'll answer them and say, I assure you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me either. And they'll go away into eternal punishment, the righteous into eternal life. See, the difference between followers of Jesus and those who don't is that those who have, who have seen him, like really seen him, have allowed his love to reorder their lives so that they can no longer make any excuses to avoid the least of these. Sure, they get tired, and they get weary. They get used. They press on. And these works of compassion and mercy are not some sort of strategy to care for the poor and oppressed until a better or more effective social policy is put into place. Disciples of Jesus do not outsource works of compassion and mercy to another entity because these kinds of works are a direct result of love. They are, they are the fruit of reordered love and are a result of the social policy that Jesus embodied and gave his people for the restoration of the world. And the apostle Peter knows all about this because he was there that day. He heard Jesus teach this. He saw Jesus do this. He participated in doing it with Jesus. And he knows the difference, Peter, between those who are false Christians and those who are true Christians. And he knows the kind of fruit reordered love creates. And he knows what it takes to cultivate the soul of the heart and liberate the Christian into a faithful love. And he, he also knows the kind of fruit disordered love creates. He, he knows what hardens the soul of the heart and takes captive the Christian, resulting in a long, slow, destructive, eternal destruction and death sentence if, of course, we're to take Jesus 
seriously. And so writing the Christians exiled throughout Roman provinces, all malice, all this in 1 Peter 2, which has been our base text. So rid yourselves of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. Everybody say slander. Like newborn infants, desire the pure spiritual milk so that you may grow by it for your salvation. Since you have tasted that the Lord is good, coming to Him a living stone, rejected by men. Hey, rejected by men, right? But chosen and valuable to God. You yourselves as living stones are being built into a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it is contained in Scripture, look, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and honored cornerstone, and the one who believes in Him will never be put to shame. This is about Jesus. So honor will come to you who believe for the unbelieving, the stone that the builders rejected. This one has become the cornerstone, Peter then says, and a stone to stumble over and a rock to trip over. They trip and fall because they refuse to obey Obey the message, just as predicted. The reason why we're falling and the reason why society falls is we just don't believe what Jesus says, or we have either separated the truth of God from our lives. And if we separate the truth of God from our lives, we are incapable of separating the truth of God from the lies. And so Peter then says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Say royal priesthood. We're, we're, we're kingdom of God people. A holy nation. Say holy nation. A people for His possession. Say His possession. So that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, man, now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. You are, you, are God's, you are God's possession. Say, I am God's possession. And if you're God's possession, it means you're a citizen of a holy nation. And you've been ushered into a royal priesthood where you enter into the gaps where the lies exist and you proclaim the truth out of love. And you can do that because the fruit of our lives measure up to the words from our lips. Because when we climb into the gaps and we see the hungry, we give food. We see the thirsty, we give drink. We see the naked, we give them our shirts. Even the Hawaiian ones. We give them our lives. And so Peter goes on and he says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles. Remember, these were forced migrants from Roman expansion. These are immigrants living in the land of Rome. I urge you as foreigners and exiles. And then he uses another word that helps them see not only are you physically immigrants, foreigners, but you are spiritual immigrants and foreigners. You are spiritual exiles to avoid worldly desires that wage war against your lives. Worldly desires. He's talking to people who live in Rome, and Rome is beautiful and awesome and glorious. And Rome makes promises that Rome can keep. And Rome wants them to say that Caesar is Lord, not Jesus is Lord. And Rome promises them bread for the hungry. 
and water for the thirsty, and clothes when they are naked, and will keep them out of prison so long as they say, Jesus is not the Lord, Caesar is Lord. So Peter says, no, no. I urge you as foreigners and exiles to avoid worldly desires that wage war against your lives. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that in case, so that in a case where they speak against you as those who do what is evil, they will, by observing your good works, glorify God on the day of visitation. I want you to live in such a way that when everybody says you're agnostic because you don't believe in all the Roman gods, when everybody says you don't love Rome enough, that they'll see the works of your life and they'll just have to shut up. They'll just have to look and go, <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I mean, they feed the, they feed the, they feed the hungry. They, they clothe the naked. Tertullian, a Latin church father, once said that, that everybody knew who the Christians were, not because they preached good sermons and had good praise bands, but because they took care of not only their poor, but the poor of Rome too. They buried not only their dead, but they buried the dead of Rome too. They were a people who saw that they were a royal priesthood. They knew that the only way people would be able to cross the bridge from Rome to God is on the backs of a person, and the back was the Christian. And they were willing to let it happen because eternity was far greater than the now. But that changed the now. So that by observing your good works, glorify God on the day of visitation. So then he says this, and this is the most scandalous of all to me because these Christians are getting persecuted by the emperor. The emperor's killing them. Peter stands up and gives these words to Sylvanus, who writes this letter and says, Submit to every human authority because of the Lord. Don't submit for their sake, submit for the Lord's sake. Whether to the emperor as a supreme authority or to governors as those sent out by him to punish those who do what is evil and to praise those who do what is good. For it is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. As gods, say it with me, slaves. See, that's what the Greek means there. The one thing about this particular translation is it gets to the Greek really deeply. The word here is not servant, it is slave. As God's slave, involuntary slavery, live as a liberated people, but don't use your freedom as a way to conceal evil. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Peter knows these Christians are living under the pressure of ridicule and persecution. Roman expansion have made them immigrants in a foreign land, and he wants them to live a life that bears the kind of fruit that blesses the onlookers, even the Romans. How they live matters. By their fruits, he wants them known as followers of Jesus. They've been saved by grace and grace alone, and they have been then called into, they've been saved from, and now into a life of good works as a holy nation and a royal priesthood in the midst of all worldly nations, including 
Rome. And it's what Jesus taught Peter. And Peter explains that a life of reordered love and good works will at some point silence ignorant talk of foolish people. Ignorant because they don't know. Peter goes on to tell them that they're to live a life in submission to Rome, even under such pressure. But then when he says to them, if you look at the text, do not let your freedom, you've been freed, you've been liberated, as God's people, you were liberated people, don't let your freedom as a, uh, be as a way to conceal evil. What Peter is saying there, and you catch even more so later in the text, is he's saying, look, you go ahead and live under, under submission to the empire, but and accommodate the empire, but you don't concede and subordinate to unjust and evil practices no matter where it comes from, even the empire. Don't let your freedom to be free, to submit to whomever, lead you to a place of concession and, 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 and capitulation to the injustices that are around you. He says, you're free. You're free. To live free. Because the reign of sin and death is going to deal it out. You've been liberated by Christ into a freedom that should be leveraged as a witness to all onlookers. See, this is similar to what Paul said in Galatians 5 verse 1 when he said, Christ has liberated us to be free. And then in verse 13 he said, For you were called to be free, brothers. Only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the what? For the flesh. But serve one another through love, for the entire law is fulfilled in one statement. Love your neighbor as yourself, and if it doesn't look like love, you are free to live the life of love. Here's the challenge. Just like Jesus warned Peter when he was learning what it meant to be a disciple, there will be some within the church who will prove to be false Christians. They will not walk according to the Spirit or do good works and bear fruit. They'll cave to suffering or the demands of Rome. And so toward the end of the letter, Peter writes this. He writes this. He says in 1 Peter 4 verse 12, Dear friends, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you as if something unusual were happening to you. Like he says, like, this isn't new. Instead, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of the Christ, so that you may also rejoice with a great joy at the revelation of His glory. If you're ridiculed for the name of Christ, you're blessed. Bring it, right? Like that, you're blessed. Like be blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. None of you, however, should suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, a meddler. You're not that. You're going to be called all of that, by the way. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he should not be ashamed. They should glorify God in having that name. But the time has come for judgment to begin with God's household. Where does judgment begin? In God's house. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who disobey the gospel of God? It is hard for the righteous to be saved, he quotes from the Hebrew Scriptures. What will become of the ungodly and the sinners? So those who suffer according to God's will should, while doing what? What is good? Entrust themselves to a faithful creator. You press on, and you keep giving food to the hungry and drink to the thirsty. You keep welcoming the stranger. 
You keep sitting with the prisoners. And other Christians are going to say, no! But you know by their fruits. So you press on and bear fruit. And entrust yourself to a faithful creator. Because he alone at the end of the day is judge. And so Peter wisely turns his attention to the leaders. The leaders of the church. And so he says in 1 Peter 5, verse 1, Therefore, as a fellow elder and a witness to the sufferings of the King, Christ, Messiah, Jewish worker King, and also a participant in the glory about to be revealed, I exhort the elders among you, shepherd God's flock among you, not overseeing out of compulsion, but, here's that word again, freely, according to God's will, not for the money, but eagerly, not lording it over those who entrusted to you, who've been entrusted to you, but being what? Examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. This is why I preach the stuff I preach. And this is why we try to live the life we live. Because it's a life of love. Love's got to look like something. And every single one of you have every right to judge me as a preacher by my fruits. But by my fruits. You as a flock have every right to judge the shepherds by their fruits. But you as a flock have every right to judge one another by our fruits. Not judge as in like announced judgment, but in order to discern to whom will we listen? To whom will we cling? To whom will we do life with? Is the life that they are living going to lead me down the narrow road? Or is the life that my brother and sister who have confessed Jesus as Lord, but whose lives look like more like the wide road with the wide goat, is their lives leading me there? Because if their lives leading me there, I've got to get on the narrow road. So who are those people? See, because the thing about false prophets, false teachers, and false Christians is we'll use Jesus as our example. We'll use the Bible. We've seen that. But the fruit's not there. The fruit doesn't look like Matthew 25. It doesn't look like that. But Peter doesn't stop here. He keeps on moving in through the congregation. And he says, in the same way, you younger men, be subject to the elders. And all of you, say all of you, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. In all of this discernment, we do so with humility. We don't fire shots over the bow. We don't right jab and left punch when they turn away. That's not humility. That's something else. Clothe yourselves with humility because, look at the text, God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that He may exalt you at the proper time, 
casting all you care on Him because He cares for you. And then finally, Peter closes this letter and he reminds them that the devil is alive and well. Verse 8, read it with me. Be serious. Be alert. Resist him and be firm in the faith knowing that the same sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. Resist Him. And sometimes resisting Him is going to look like resisting the person sitting next to you. And that's the challenge of this whole thing. See, that's the struggle with the church. And this is the point. Like Sometimes resisting the devil is going to be look like resisting Fox and MSNBC and CNN and Twitter and Facebook. It just is. It just has to be sometimes. It just has to be. Because anything that would invite me into seeing another human being is anything other is made in the image of God and loved by God. Anything that would invite me to see another person in need and not fulfill that need because I follow Jesus is a temptation to move away from the call of good works that when we do it blesses people who are watching our lives. Because by our fruits, they're going to know. By our fruits, they're going to know. And so now he says, he ends it, he says, look, now the God of all grace who called you to His eternal glory in Christ Jesus will personally restore. Will personally restore. Who will restore? Christ. He will do it personally. Look at that. Jesus will, in the quiet of your room, on your bed, personally restore, establish, strengthen, and support you. But here's the thing we don't like. After, ah, after you have suffered a little. Ah, but not before. Like, okay, we have to wait until after. Like, you're going to catch it because good works in a bad works world, reordered love in a disordered land that asks for disordered loyalties based upon disordered loves will create a bit of a firestorm for you. And for me. You'll get that Facebook message. You'll get that email. You'll get that phone call. You'll get that look. Resist. Press on. Because, as verse 11 says, the glory and dominion belongs to Christ forever. The dominion doesn't belong to Caesar. That's a political word, dominion. It's a power word. It means power. Dominion doesn't belong to Caesar. It belongs to Christ. And then I want to show you something that Peter does that I've always found entertaining. Listen how Peter closes this whole thing out. He gives a bit of a, a sarcastic nod to deep biblical theology. Look at what he says, verse 13. The fellow elect church in what? In Babylon greets you. <laughs> you see what he's doing? Like, he's in Rome. Babylon no longer literally exists. Peter knows that every nation other than the kingdom of God is Babylon. And he's in Rome. And he wants them to remember it's Babylon. I've said it before. I love the United States of America. It is the best Babylon I know. She's still Babylon. Greetings to you 
from the church in Babylon. So what do we take from all this? We live in a disordered land filled with disordered loves that leads to all sorts of disordered loyalties. And Jesus tells us the road to disordered love is wide, but to load the, lo- the road to reordered love is narrow. There are false teachers, false prophets, and false Christians all along the way. They will tempt us to slander one another and divide. They will try to trip us up with deceit. They will try to persuade us to believe that their way is the true road, and they may even use Jesus to try and prove it. And like Peter told the Christians, we need to be alert and serious in our discernment because we will find them on each side of the narrow road. On each side of the narrow road, we'll also find the hungry and the thirsty, the stranger, foreigner, and the naked and shamed, the imprisoned, the sick. And like Peter told the Christians in the Roman provinces, we need to remember that we too are exiles. This land is not our ultimately is not where our ultimate citizenship is found. We must love it, care for it, and work for its good, but do so as a royal priesthood of exiles who have been formed by God and King Jesus as a holy nation, a people for His possession. And because God and King Jesus has formed us into a global nation, exiled throughout the world with brothers and sisters all over we should be willing to do the same for all people from all places. And if we believe this, there can be no separation between the truth we confess and the life we live. We must separate the truth from the lies so that we are sure not to separate God's truth from our lives. The love of Christ has reordered our lives. We will get tired and we will get weary and we will be ridiculed. We'll experience strained relationships and criticism. But such is the case when we choose to follow Jesus along the narrow road. Take heart, brother. Take heart, sister. When we choose to stop along the side of the road to feed the hungry and give drink to the thirsty and welcome the stranger and clothe the naked and sit with the imprisoned and care for the sick, others will call us names like liberal and conservative and other types of things that we like to do in our world. And they'll tell us that we better watch out because the hungry and thirsty might use us. They'll tell us we better watch out because the stranger might harm us. The naked might rob us. The imprisoned might make us look guilty and the sick might just be contagious. Jesus then says, whatever you've done for any of them, you have done to me. We must follow Jesus out of love for us. He provides for us so we aren't hungry, thirsty, or naked. Out of love for us, when we were displaced strangers, He welcomed us into His kingdom where we found a family and a home together with God as our Father. Out of love for us, He liberated us from every chain the reign of sin and death and the Babylons of this world would use to imprison us. Out of love for us. He continually heals us from our sicknesses, whether we're sickened by our sins, transgressions, and iniquities, or by our diseases. Either way, by the wounds of Christ, we have been healed, and by the power of His resurrection, we will never really die. 
It is out of love for us that Christ asks us to join Him in doing the same for others. We are His royal priesthood, a holy nation called to good works, compassion, and mercy to all. We cannot wait on a better or more effective social policy to be put into place by someone else. We're disciples of Jesus and citizens of God's never-failing kingdom, and we won't outsource these giving good works to another entity. The good works of compassion and mercy are the fruits of reordered love and is the result of the social policy that Jesus embodied and gave his people to do for the restoration of our land and the world. This is the life to which Peter is calling the foreigners and exiles in the provinces of Rome. And it is the life God calls us to today as foreigners and exiles in these United States. In a disordered land, may reordered love be the church's witness. And all of God's people said. And so today, as a way of strengthening our, weak, our witness, as a way of remembering our witness, as a way of remembering who we are and whose we are and what we are called to do and how we are called to live, we come to the table of the Lord where no one is turned away. The sick, you're welcomed. The naked, the, clothed, the hungry, the thirsty, the stranger, all are welcomed to the table because a thousand times we have all failed still God's presence remains. But may the truth of God's presence through the body and the blood of Jesus and the bread and in the wine here, may the truth of God's presence not be separated from our lives. May our lives look like the one we confess. The one who forgives us and strengthens us. Remember what Peter said. He will personally... He will personally restore you, brother. He will personally strengthen you, my sister. He will do it. His body and blood has secured it. So whatever you bring, bring it. Bring it to the table and let it down. Grab the bread and grab the cup. Receive the body and the blood of Christ. And by the inside out, may us, may we all be transformed. <laughs>